0: You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points.
1: Hello, and welcome to Radically Pragmatic, a Progressive Policy Institute podcast. My name is Tresa Pekovitz, and I am the co-director of Reinventing America's Schools, which is a project of PPI. If you aren't already familiar, the Reinventing America's Schools project is a team of advocates and thought leaders advocating for school choice and increased educational equity, while exploring the new paradigm of public education that is emerging to fit the realities of the 21st century. I wanted to come on today's episode and talk about some of the exciting things happening right now with our team. Last week, in partnership with the 74 million, we presented a discussion with education leaders from around the country to consider the future of school choice in America. We zeroed in on what parents, thought leaders, and advocates can do to ensure every child receives the high quality of education they deserve. We heard from former Georgia State Representative, Alicia Morgan. Naomi Shelton, the CEO of the National Charter Collaborative, the Senior Vice President of the Mind Trust in Indianapolis, Patrick Morgan, and a young adult who discussed her own experience fighting for a better education. My friend, colleague, and co-director of Reinventing America's Schools, Curtis Valentine, guided the discussion and asked the hard questions about where we go from here. The broadcast got rave reviews from our colleagues, with several calling it inspiring. Of course we taped it and you'll be able to listen in in just a moment in addition to our series of webinars reinventing america schools has also been busy with thoughtful written work including a just published piece by myself on the urgent national imperative for what is really an all hands on deck effort needed to reopen america schools for in-person education this fall and how we can do it safely also Heads up on a report that is coming out soon from our founder, David Osborne. It's the last piece we will publish by him for the foreseeable future as he heads into quasi-retirement. I have read it and it is pure David Osborne. Thoughtful, insightful, well-researched and definitely worth a read. If you're interested in keeping up with what we're doing, head over to progressivepolicy.org to learn more. You'll find us under the projects tab and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, R-A-S underscore education we've got another fantastic webinar coming up at the end of the month that you won't want to miss so be on the lookout for that announcement on our social media and with that i'm going to turn the rest of this episode over to curtis and last week's event we got next the future of school choice so you can hear what our fantastic speakers had to say and perhaps take away some inspiration for yourself thanks for listening and enjoy the episode
2: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to We Got Next, the future of school choice. My name is Curtis Valentine, and I'm your moderator for today. Today's event is co-sponsored by the Reinventing America Schools Project and the 74. The Reinventing America Schools Project is housed at the Progressive Policy Institute and promotes a model of schools we call 21st century school systems, or systems that provide parents more choice, and give schools more autonomy in return for more accountability. Our research shows that in urban America, public school systems that do this produce the most rapid improvement in student performance and in outcomes such as high school graduation and college enrollment. In a follow up to our celebration of the 30th anniversary of the passage of the first charter school law in America, we look forward 30 years. The purpose of today's webinar is to answer a few questions. What will America's public school system look like in 2050? What should we be fighting for and who should be at the table driving change? Today we have an all-star panel of experts who are shaping the future of Black and Brown students in America. Before we get into introductions, we want to survey the crowd. We want to know who is here with us. So you'll see a survey come up and we want you to fill it out based on which group you most identify with. I often say I'm, about, I'm in about four of these groups. So are you a, are you, do you most identify as a parent, an educator, a funder, a journalist, an advocate, or a policymaker? Uh, and we will review those uh, answers soon. That being said, uh, I wanna give my panelists um, an opportunity to introduce themselves Um, And let's start with my sister, Alicia Morgan, uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia.
3: Well, good afternoon. Thank you, Curtis, and hello to my fellow amazing panelists. Um, It's an honor to be with you, and hello to everyone that's watching. I'm Alicia Thomas Morgan, former state legislator from the great state of Georgia. I am also a former uh, charter school management uh, organization leader, Ivy Prep Academies. Uh, And I'm a mom of a ninth grader who started school this week uh, virtually uh, and also a fiance and an active member of the community. Again, very excited to be here and looking forward to this great conversation.
2: Great, Um, Naomi Shelton, please introduce yourself.
4: Well, good afternoon, Naomi Shelton. Uh, I am the CEO of the National Charter Collaborative. Uh, The National Charter Collaborative is an organization that is focused on single-site charter leaders of color and making sure that we we are providing high-performing schools that provide quality education options for students. Uh, I also serve as a member of the D.C. Public Charter School Board, the authorizing body for schools here, charter schools here in D.C. Uh, I'm a daughter. I am a friend. I am all of those things, and I am a non-native Washingtonian here in the uh, District of Columbia.
2: Great, and glad you're here. Jada, Jada Bolar, tell us about yourself.
5: Hi, I'm Jada Bolar. I am um, the Communications Associate with the National Parents Union, an organization that is pushing for policy and helping with education for Black and Brown students across the nation.
2: Thank you, glad you're here. Uh, Patrick,
6: Patrick Jones. Yeah, Patrick Jones here from the Mind Trust in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, Mind Trust is an organization that supports charter schools and innovation schools here in our city. Uh, I'm the senior vice president of leadership and equity for the Mind Trust, which means I lead the equity work internally for the organization and leadership work, and uh, try to influence it uh, with our schools and organizations that we support outside of it. Happy to be here wonderful wife. Do I say I'm a great husband? I hope I am. have two great kids who started uh, school this week, so we're excited about that and excited to get this work on this this year, man. We got to get it moving.
2: Thank you so much, and shout out to the husbands out there. Um, There you go. Uh, Last but not least, Dr. Charles Cole.
7: Hey, uh, I'm Charles. Uh, I run an organization called Energy Converters that focuses on the end users of education, which is basically students, their parents, and their community around building agency and having a voice in, in academics and about their life. I'm an Oakland boy. I was born in Chicago, but I'm an I'm a Oakland dude and uh, I'm happy to be here.
2: Appreciate that. Before we get into
7: our first question, let's take um, that the poll out and find out who's with us. Uh, as
2: you all can see, um, more than half of our audience are advocates. And so these are folks on the front lines, advocating at the state, local, in some cases, the federal level. Um, at the same time, our second largest group are educators. And so these are folks who are looking at you know, what the future of education looks like, more importantly, what it looks like for educators. Um, and then we also have um, a number of parents, policymakers. Alicia. Um, so just keep that in mind um, as you are answering these questions. And that being said, I will keep it um, with you, Alicia. You know this term "movement," and oftentimes people have said, "You know, I'm I'm a this charter school movement." You know, I'm I'm in the we're in the movement. Um, is often you know used to refer to the last 30 years, uh, where you had funders, government officials, researchers, advocates, and allies really dedicating themselves to really increasing educational options. Mm-hmm. Um, see, you are a student of the civil rights movement, graduate of, of Spelman College. Uh, been a mentee of greats like Reverend Joseph Lowry. And Mm -hmm. so you've done this. You've spoken about it, written about it. Is this a movement? Uh, And if not, why not?
3: (laughs) So thank you for that. And I appreciate you uh, lifting up the name of, yes, one of the greatest mentors I've ever had, Dr. Joseph Lowry. Uh, God rest his soul. And I smile because while our values were the same, we had very vigorous debates about charter schools, Uh, but he never stopped supporting me uh, even in my pursuit uh, of equity in that way. And so to answer your question, Curtis, I'd say we're moving, but I'm not sure I'd call us a movement. Uh, And the reason that I say that is we certainly have some similarities, right? We've got coalitions of people who believe in choice. Maybe they come to this issue for different reasons. Um, you know, it's about equity for some and leveling the playing field. Uh, For others, it might be about free market. Um, For some, it's about escaping schools that don't work or just finding a school that, you know, meets the needs of a child. And so where all those things meet, you know, it's great that we can uh, move this forward. Uh, But I don't know if we speak with um, one sound voice. I don't know if we have a clear direction and a clear end goal when it comes to choice and so I think that's part of why we're not yet a movement. I think also what makes us moving and not a movement is uh, we don't have the 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 folks who are directly affected by this as the most significant part of the movement and frankly even if you look at the poll that was just taken right it's mostly us advocates and I feel like I fit in so many of those categories but it's the advocates who are out front, who understand this, who are doing it, but we don't see the number of parents that we need to see. And I would argue that we don't see the number of young people um, and any real movement as we've seen across this world, young people have been at the forefront. And so I think there's a place for that. And then the final thing I would say, and I think this is really the most important, we we lack the sense of urgency that we need that would have existed in other movements And so when I think about the fact that school started here in Georgia this week, there are parents in Georgia and across this country who are heartbroken, who are facing anxiety right now because they are faced with not having enough choices for their kids, having no choices at all, or just having really, really poor choices. Uh, And we know that we're responsible for the life trajectory of our kids. And I don't get 10 years to try to figure out how I'm going to find the right school for Layla. I have today. And so I wish that if we want to call this a movement and we really want it to be a movement, that we all have that sense of urgency to make sure that choice is real for every kid in this country. And then we can call ourselves a movement.
2: What can we learn? I mean, you're still in Atlanta. I mean, you you hear uh, talk about the Atlanta student movement. Obviously a recognition of those who come before us and how they went about making change. What can we learn from the way in which folks like Reverend Joseph Lowry and John Lewis and others uh, went about making change.
3: You know, I think the most important thing, and this is really a word of encouragement. Everybody didn't march with Dr. King. You know, we love to romanticize the civil rights movement uh, for one that, you know, in the 50s and 60s, everybody was marching, everybody was organizing, you know, all the uh, whites and blacks were, you know, working together and that's just not the case, right? And so my, I think what we can learn is number one, we all have a role. There are some, uh, as my old friend would say, there are some who are gonna be tree shakers and some who are gonna be jelly makers. And we all have a role that we play right there was, uh, you know, Dr King who was organizing and out there marching and going to jail. And then there was Andy young who was in there, you know, having the negotiations, so we all have a role to play. And the other piece of that is because everybody didn't march with Dr King didn't mean that we didn't get we didn't make progress. And so for those of us who are on the front lines, or in the back lines or wherever we are in this move in this in this moving part right Uh, that It's okay that everybody is not there that we still have this imperative right to continue to work continue to move forward. Um, You know, again, put those the, the parents and young people on the front lines, but don't get discouraged that not everybody shares, you know, our values or our sense of urgency, but we have to keep moving because at the end of the day we're talking about the lives of children.
2: Charles, I want to come to you really quickly. You and I have had conversations, particularly you're in Chicago, you've obviously connected to Oakland, two um, sort of spaces that were the center of, of, of movement, many ways post-civil rights. You've talked about, you know, how close you grew up to folks, you know, like um, Fred Hampton. Um, you know, this question of what we can learn, what would folks like Fred Hampton and others in the movement also say about? what we should be doing now and moving forward.
7: Well, I'm definitely not gonna to try to speak for the for the chairman, but uh, I do love being from this community, but I do think that, you know, folks that ilk, I mean, I think that you gotta be aware of what these systems do to us and what they mean to us and have some facts in it. And I think that knowledge and information is just really, really important. Uh, when we run energy converters, we run it off of three things, awareness, navigation, and duty. First, you got to be aware. And I think a lot of people are not aware. I've seen schools all across the country. And a lot of young people in communities that I work with have not seen their type of kid in a school that is functioning. They haven't seen one where they're getting what they deserve so it's hard to demand something better if you've not seen it and then navigation is our people got to live in this right now like right now like we got a lot of what should happen what should be but people got to navigate in the here and now like miss morgan said like she got to send that baby to school on monday so what do you have for me and in an imperfect system that has not loved us never loved us and most people don't even know that black people are the reason you got free public education today. you know what i'm saying the least you can do is give me the information and let me make a choice for myself i don't care what you choose that's a personal piece but i got a real beef with you if you got all these options but you want to deny other people and then duty once you know those things get out the way let people make the choices they need to make if they want to go to that charter school cool if they want to go to that traditional school cool If they want to do that home school but give me my dignity so i think that all those people that you were naming, Curtis, and even the lineage from you—I think it all starts with dignity, man. We, we—why are we having to have discussions around our humanity? That's the wildest, craziest thing ever.
2: Neil, I want to come to you. Um, and some say the future of education is actually in the past. And I want to confess, I'm—I'm I'm some people. Uh, that's, thats me. Um, you know that you know our ancestors have you know really laid the blueprint, particularly as it relates to you know um, leadership creation of schools. Um, over a generation ago, over, over a century ago, philanthropists like Julius Rosenwald connected with leaders like Booker T. Washington, um, and were funding schools envisioned by Black communities. I mentioned my great grandparents really saying, "This is the type of school we want, run by Black leaders." Um, so, in the work that you do, what can the past, what can our our, our foreparents teach us about what the future of education should look like? Well,
4: thank you for this question. Uh, It is really interesting that you asked the question about what the past can teach us about the future. Um, If you've heard me speak before, I definitely talk about context. And I believe that that is the crux of what it means to find those two things. Um, I attended Tougaloo College, which is a small liberal arts HBCU in uh, the Jackson area of Mississippi. And that word is uh, derived from a Choctaw word, which means the meeting of two rivers. And the motto of Tougaloo College is where history meets the future. We just lost a... Uh, an amazing pioneer of the civil rights movement. Uh, and Bob Moses was spent plenty of time on Tougaloo College's campus. And what I know to be true about the time that was spent between the Tougaloo 9 uh, that uh, went and did a sit-in in Jackson, Mississippi, and what I know to be true about the, the students that I attended the college with and the students there today, um, and the students that sit in the classrooms of the schools that the founders and leaders of uh, our network represent is that we have to know what has happened before us to be able to improve and build upon and by not knowing our history, we are deemed to repeat it. And so what I believe to be true because of uh, being, again, a fourth generation graduate of Tougaloo College and what I know to be true about learning from all of the practices, all of the great things that have come before us in, this, in the world of education is that communities, specifically black, brown and indigenous communities know what is what works for their students and the leaders that have uh, come into the space, into the charter space specifically, know what works. They have seen great practices of teachers. Uh, I, I mentioned in my piece for the 74, uh, the work that has come and, and been seen in classrooms that have has built networks, amazing networks of schools. And so how do we take those practices, make sure that we create communities of practice and have that opportunity to learn and share and really build upon what has already been taught to us. We have people that make money off of de- developing curriculum, we have people that make money off of developing new opportunities, but what are we learning and what have we learned and gained and really retained from what has come before us? Um, I think if you may also know that I worked for United Negro College Fund, UNCF, and that institution put out a report several years ago called Imparting Wisdom, HBCU Lessons for K-12, and that in, in itself is the crux of where this, all this comes from. Uh, HBCUs graduate a a higher proportion of Black students than traditional PWIs, and so what is it that we're taking from those institutions that we can impart into the K-12 space because they know what works? And so across the board, how are we creating the ecosystem that allows for us to really catalyze and learn from and build upon what has already been taught?
2: And so more specifically, what is the National Charter Collaborative really doing um, to make this come true?
4: So we uh, are in the process of evolving. I started my, my role as the inaugural CEO of the organization. Earlier this year, I always say I have one more day ahead of me than Joe Biden. Um, and so in that, what we're doing now is restructuring what that looks like. So we've kicked off um, some amazing programming that is focused on how to catalyze the work of, of leaders and make sure that they have everything they need to be sustainable. Um, our Manati Fellowship, which the inaugural fellowship took place here in D.C. That fellowship is um, going to evolve into a national program um, based on regions to think about how do we, again, catalyze, which Manati is the Swahili word for uh, catalyze, how do we really build upon what we've learned from those founders who started this work? Uh, 25 plus years ago and impart that wisdom to incoming found- founders and leaders? How do we think about this work in a way where we're creating partnerships that make the most sense? So we're thinking about the supply of board members. We're thinking about making sure that we're connecting people from the community to community schools. And then we're also thinking in that strengthening, bu- that strengthening bucket of the work, how are we connecting people to the financial resources that they need and to con- on that continuum for the sustainability of these institutions? What are we doing to say here's the research and data that proves out what we've known to be true based on data that has come out recently. Uh, we know that students who attend schools that have a black principal are less likely to um, have a uh, to, to be um, uh, suspended. We know that there are tons of processes and processes and uh, the ways that we go about the work that can be perpetuated throughout this throughout this uh, community. So we're thinking of ways to not only supply, strengthen and sustain this work, but it is an overarching level of support and advocacy and making sure that we're talking about and amplifying the work of these single site leaders. Because yes, we can, ha- we can talk about all the big box chains of charter schools, but the people that have decided to commit themselves to the individuals that are in the communities and look like them that need the most support at this time.
2: Before we move on, I just want to say a few names. Lagra Newman, uh, Margaret Fortune, Atasha James. We we have to say the names of these women school founders um, who really put their neck out there uh, to really go through the process of starting a school.
1: That's right. Um, Nina
2: Gilbert.
4: Nina Gilbert. I would also want to call Uh, The men that have done this work, right? So Tim King, we have some amazing school leaders here in D.C. Um, So if you want to look up the social justice school, Myron Long just started that school here and had to open in the middle of a pandemic. We have seen tons of opportunities that have been taken, but we've also seen where disproportionately school leaders and schools that are led by people of color are disproportionately closed. Over 75% of the schools that have closed here in D.C. over the last 25 years have been schools led by people Of color. And that is not always because of academic reasons. That is because of the lack of financial support. And uh, Alicia and I have talked about this at length that it is not solely the idea of people not having the ability to do the work, it is the support. Right. It is to make sure that people have all that they need across the board because they don't have a central office. There is no one thinking about those other things. The people who lead these schools, the operations teams, the, the principals and the CEOs or executive directors of these schools are responsible for every single piece of the work. Alicia can go into detail about what that looks like. Thankfully, I've only had to review applications or I had to look at the uh, the outcomes of schools to make the determination on whether or not a school opens or closed. But I do know that the people that look like us, the ones of us that are on this uh, panel today, do not receive the same levels of support. And we have to make sure that that is, that is at the top of the list of things that we do going into the next 30 years.
3: Amen, sister.
2: Thank you. I want to say Donald Hens, Earl Martin Phelan, can't forget my brothers, um, but okay. someone said, someone said money and, you know, Patrick, I'm, 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 as, as the preachers say, I'm, I'm bowling down your street. Um, and so, you know, in, you know, in 2020, uh, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation admitted that the impact of its uh, investment, the foundation's investments of over $2 billion dollars and so-called public education reform over the last 10 years has been disappointing. Uh, today in America, a student zip code is just as much an indicator predictor of their future as it was 30, 30 years ago. Uh, so Patrick, you know, what did education funders over the last 30 years get right? And, and what do they get wrong?
6: I think first up, wanna applaud Bill Gates. Not too many times you can applaud a billionaire by saying it, you know, it, it, was, it was negligible at best and saying whether or not this works. I think one of the best things that we can do as a reform community is critique our own work, and I think that will be our undoing unless we start to do that. The other thing is like to think about like what worked. I'm looking at opportunities for school leaders of color and people in our communities to form and start some schools and have input on some schools has not happened in mass, but it has happened think there's some evidence in proficiency in schools. I think also there has been, the biggest impact is there's been a reimagining of what education can be. And we didn't really see that in the same way. It happened in some ways before the reform movement, but it's happening a lot more now. What did not work? There's a lot of that. The thievery of our ideas, Harriet Ball, Marva Collins, Joe Clark, Jaime Escalante, Geneva Gay. When we look at everything that they brought to the table before the reform movement has been stolen, has been put into books, has been attributed to other people that that those methods did not belong to, that's problematic. Think uh, Naomi called this out, lower funding and philanthropy for school leaders of color. Um, I think another thing that plagues us is a singular focus in so many schools, it's not to say that one school shouldn't have a singular focus, but so many schools are parodies of one another. Um, and then one thing I'm really passionate about is this idea of what I'm calling a limited idea of excellence. And so when we look at, you know, everybody's standards base, everybody's really focused, on, okay, we're going to hit this what the state is considering uh, exceptional for students when the real reality of the situation is if we go to some of the best schools in America, that standard is actually the lowest level kids are performing at. Um, I was a math counts coach at the school that I used to run uh, at Tenley and where I used to teach. Math counts is one of the highest level of mathematics that you can do in middle school. When we look at the math Olympiad. We look at forensic debates. When we look at the science Olympiad, that's what our kids should be doing. And every time I took a school to those championships, to those competitions, we would be the only black school there. It would be filled with white children. It would be filled with children of other ethnicities, but no Latino schools, no black schools, and that's a hundred percent problematic because those kids in middle school were getting uh, tuition free uh, ride, full rides to schools like Purdue, to schools like um, Rolls-Holman, and schools all around our state here in Indiana. And that's without even completing one single year of high school from being in those programs. And for us to not afford our kids access to some of those because our schools are so limited in their thinking about what excellence is, is problematic.
2: So that being said, now you have the opportunity, you have a platform, you have someone coming to you saying, Patrick, what should we be doing over the next 30 years yeah. based on what you're saying we've done wrong over the past 30.
6: Yeah, the biggest thing is increase that, increase what is the highest level of education for our students and make parents aware of what exactly that is. The other thing is understanding that we need to build a comprehensive ecosystem, a community around education. I believe in, Dr. Cole is probably going to talk about self-determination on this call. I believe in it. Kujichagalia, the second principle of Kwanzaa, self-determination in a sustainable way. If a prosperity in our community is going to be sustainable, we must understand that all academic, social, and economic aspects of what schooling is, is our responsibility. The widest space in school reform right now is the finance room in any school district and in any charter school. It's the whitest space in school, and that's nothing against white folks, but it is a barrier for Kuji Chagalia for Black and brown folks, 100%. If we don't understand and control all of that, then we can't build a comprehensive ecosystem for our kids. Here's, here's how this works. If I ran the finance space and I need a vendor for something, then, and, and I'm Black, then I'm more likely to hire a Black vendor. That Black vendor is more likely to give back to my school is more likely to provide internships for my school, is more likely to provide my children with social capital, Then is more likely for my child to be successful in whatever endeavor they want to embark upon. And so when we look at it like this, we have to look at it as a whole system and not just a school, not just singular education. Um, Education, Claude Anderson says, like, education was not meant to solve uh, all of our economic and social woes. And when the government was given the the choice of saying that we want to to solve this problem with with these people who just left slavery, and they had the choice between 40 acres and a mule and and given some type of assistance to start schools, they went with the schools and they they went away with the 40 acres and a mule. Why? Because they understand the importance of economics in our communities. And so we have to understand we can't solve this problem just by getting schools to become better. That ain't going to work. I've led tons of schools that have uh, produced great uh, academic results for kids and have seen the same things that I grew up with from those schools where kids were performing on grade level to the clips of 85, 90 percent and saw the same outcomes for the kids I was teaching with the kids I grew up with. What does that mean? That education is not the only thing we need to be focused on, but we can use education as a platform. Platform to handle it as a multifaceted approach to really uplift our folks with the next phase of this movement.
2: No, thank you, Patrick. And you know, for those who are watching, I mean, what you're seeing is um, six individuals who are kind of sitting down at a kind of a virtual table, a table that, we've, that we've, you know, we have set um, for ourselves. Uh, and this question of who's at the table is incredibly important. There's a little saying, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And for too long, we've not been at the table. And so this question of how we move forward when we're going to address, but before we do that, uh, we want to pull the audience uh, once more. And this is an idea of sort of who's at the table uh, and who, who should have greater voice than they have now. And so not so much whether they should be at the table or not, because in some of the cases you'll see in the survey, uh, they're at the table, but the question is how much voice do they have? And so for those in the audience, please answer this question for us. Who should have a greater voice in shaping what public education looks like 30 years from now. Is it parents, students, school leaders, researchers, journalists, funders, or public officials? Uh, many of, you know, each of these groups has some voice at the local, state, and federal level. The question is who should have greater voice? And we'll check back in on the results of that. Charles, I want to come to you and uh, you know to sort of stick with this theme. Uh where you stand depends on where you sit you know, where, how you feel about a particular issue depends on sort of your own circumstance and, and how the issue affects you, where you live, whether your children attend a, a mm-hmm. school that's serving them or not, you know. Um, and so you know, the face of, of those really leading um, the organizations driving school, so-called school choice and ed reform have not necessarily reflected the faces that you see on this panel um, and within our, our Latinx community. Uh, and so, you know, how have those in leadership and their own, you know, uh, personal experiences impacted what we call school choice and what it looks like and how it's been achieved?
7: Well, first off, I just want to say everybody that went off, Patrick, you just you, you, that was that was dope, man. I can't wait to hear Jada. Um, first off, I, I think I think it's named poorly, which probably leads to who gets to be at the table and make some decisions instead of calling it school choices to be called parent choice. And I think that that just inherently, you know, puts power back where it is. I know what it means. And I think we know what it means here, but we've seen that term get bastardized and used against folks that's trying to actually do good things, man. But for me, you know, it always is going to be parents and students for me. And, and, from, and, and I can't separate who I am and what I am and what I've been through in this system with what I feel. I lived in four shelters. Like I went to 11 elementary schools. Like my parents was dope fiends for a minute until they got clean. Like, and I had to navigate a lot of that stuff by myself. So when you say, you know, who, and nobody like valued like that navigation that led to becoming a doctor or figuring out these things or navigating this stuff. But yet and still, you letting people make decisions that can't even walk in these neighborhoods or are scared or afraid of these people. You have to give people their dignity and their agency back around this stuff. That don't mean they know everything. That don't mean they the end all be all or whatever. But people need to be at the front of the table around their kids and around themselves as students. You know what I mean? And I think you know, I know MPU is doing some really good stuff around that. And 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 I and I just feel like, listen, man, when you put when you raise somebody in a vulgar environment, you can't then be mad at them when they survive it and be vulgar. I'm a vulgar cat. I'm a grimy dude. And I had to be grimy to get to where I'm at, to stay where I'm at, to fight where I'm at. I'm always ready to fight. And sometimes you misfire on that, right? You know what I'm saying? And if you want to paint these parents that are trying their best to trying and asking for just a semblance of agency around where they kid can go, but then you demonize them and say, they're not using the right words. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. Parents shouldn't have to translate to school. Schools should actually translate to understand parents and the community that they're in and that they're getting paid to serve. And I just think that we have, so they have to be at the the, the very, very head of that table and they have to be the, the coaches and quarterbacks of those teams because they are the people that have to live with the consequences of what these systems are doing with our babies. And I'll just end it on this last piece, man. It's just that, if, if somebody don't want you there and they got to do with your kid, man, you should really be questioning. I don't care what kind of school it is, right? You don't owe these systems nothing. And I don't know, that's a, that's a lie from the gates of hell for me. You don't owe these systems anything. They owe us. They're supposed to be educating our kids and they're supposed to be working with us. And if any system don't want to do that, then it's time to replace it.
2: No, I mean, this is uh, an incredibly important topic. I mean, this is something, Charles, you work on daily uh, and many people, particularly, at, you know, where, where Jada is, we're going to come to you at the National Parents Union as, as really standing on. Before we do that, I do want to go back to the survey uh, and give you all a sort of a glimpse into the results of what our audience says, the group our audience says, should have greater voice than this. And so they're saying, you know, moving forward, we need parents out front. More so than ever. But the second group, and, and they're gaining, is going to be these students. And, you know, uh, thank you all for really setting me up to throw it to Jada, who, in, in many cases, is, is someone who, you know, I firmly believe um, is going to have a movie made, at, made uh, after her because of her story and the way that her story has pushed this movement and really to the point I believe, Alicia, you mentioned this idea of urgency. And oftentimes when you talk about change, when we talk about sort of statistics, percentages, increase, decrease, uh, it allows you to sort of, you know, stand pat and sort of er, slow down. But when you put a name to it and you put a story and you put a face to it, and every movement has had faces um, that we all look back to and say, wow, this is the person who's most impacted by it. It changes everything. And so, yeah, I'm sipping on my, my my National Parents Union uh, water over here, um, and when y'all give me a teacup, I have my teacup too. I can sip my tea from that as well. Uh, but you know, we we applaud you, Jada, uh, and your mother and your family. Um, you know, and so here's a question. You know, every every so-called movement um, has individuals whose stories really captivate us and reminds us how important this work is. Uh, and for those who don't know. Uh, Jada, you know, please, uh, I want to give you the floor. Tell us your story. Tell us where you're from and, you know, how the world came to know who you are in your story.
5: Yeah, so um, I'm Jada Bolar, the daughter of Kelly Williams Bolar. And Kelly Williams Bolar was the mother who was basically put on blast, essentially. Uh, she sent my sister and I to a school outside of our district and she was prosecuted for that. Um, my mother did end up doing time and to me, what that means is that, okay, I want to say really quickly, though, that she was, they, the judge did say, I want to make an example out of her, and so to hear that, and to hear that you're willing to do something and, and demonize it, when she was just trying to get a better education for my sister and I, um, the school system that we were in prior to, you know, the school outside of our district was horrible if I'm being quite honest. When I ended up going to, it was Copley School District that uh, is the school district that was outside of where we actually lived. And when I was going there, we had greenhouses, we had computer labs, we had every single, we had a, a, a rock climbing wall. All resources, pools. You know what I mean. Resources that I did not have in the inner city schools of Akron, Ohio. In Akron, Ohio, we had a, a box with dirt, and that was our green. You know, our greenhouse. That was what we had. Like, you know, we didn't have all the resources that the other school did. And yes, it was predominantly white. But my mom, she was making a decision where she felt like she knew that this would be the best choice for my sister and I. And it was. It. It essentially originally did backfire, but honestly it set me up for the rest of my life because a lot of those lemons turned into lemonade. I got this amazing opportunity to work with the National Parenting Union who was a phenomenal organization that has been nothing but powerful, a powerhouse, honestly. The way they've just helped so many families and brought so much light to a lot of people with stories like mine. Garcia. I can't remember his first name, but his name was Garcia. And he was going through something similar that me and my family went through. And so with the blessing, I believe it turned into a blessing. I was able to rub elbows with so many people that have set me up for a career, for a career path. Uh, I wanted to do the best to make sure my mom's choice was not in vain. And so I went to, uh, we ended up going to private school. Someone paid for my education, uh, an anonymous anonymous donor from, I believe like Canada, he owned a hockey team and he reached out to my mom and said, I'm super, um, moved by your story. And I want to I want to help. I want to make sure your daughter is continuing to get a better, better education. Unfortunately, my sister was too old at the time. So um, they went ahead and sent me to a, a really nice private school. But um, I have been blessed from it, honestly. And everything has really manifested itself into being something that is going to be in history books, I believe, personally. Um, when you have a situation like that, it needs light shed on it excuse me, so that's, I get choked up when I talk about it. I'm sorry, <laughs> but but yeah, I, I respect my mom so much, and I hope I can be even a part of the woman that she is today.
2: You know, we, we appreciate you, and um, you know, I'm, I'm aging myself, but you have aunties and uncles over here who got you, you need anything, you just let us know, um, and oftentimes, people like Alicia and Charles and Naomi and I get told, you know, wait, 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 and what I'll tell them is, you could tell me wait, Tell Jada wait, tell her sister to wait. Like, you know, they're in the school. You know, I, got, I got mine, we got our degrees. Yeah. You go to the school and you tell them to wait. Like that's, that's the story. Yeah. But also you're unique from most historical figures because not only did you sort of come to light, but also you are working. Like you said, I'm, I'm gonna I'm going jump in this uh, and, and do this work. Um, yes. You saw the poll. People are saying we need students. I'm someone who studied movements from so way to uprising all the way through through the movement all the way up until now. It were students at the forefront of all this. And so what role should your generation play moving forward in shaping what public education looks like, do you think?
5: One thing I noticed is that with my generation, social media is huge, right? So it's about bringing light, shedding light, having reach. Social media gives us reach. Being able to Again, like I said, shed light on situations that would have in the past been turned a deaf ear to. Having that platform, having a platform, being able to make your voice heard with social media. And honestly, I think that that's on our future. You know, we have the internet now, and now we have Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, especially TikTok, like bringing a voice to us, to my generation, and being able to reach further platforms that we wouldn't have been able to reach 20 years ago. Being able to have that, that access is phenomenal. And that's how we're going to be able to make changes. That's how we're going to be able to shift the paradigm essentially, because we're going to be able to make known things that would have been swept under the rug in the past.
2: Mm-hmm. No, thank, thank you for that. And again, I mean, we're uh, we a family in this, in this space and, and there's so many others we could call out. Um, but this is, this is what it is. And we are here to support one another and definitely support you in anything you wanna do um, moving forward. We're gonna open it up to, to questions to the rest of the panel. But before we do that, again, one last question, audience. We, we don't let you, uh, you know, um, rest too much in between our questions because we have a lot, of, you know, a lot more to go even in the next 20 minutes. And this is more so priorities of what folks like us and others should be doing over the next you know, 30 some odd years Uh, And that means funders, advocates, policymakers, parents, what should we be doing with our time moving forward? What should be the priority of school choice or parent choice, uh, whatever you want to call it, advocates moving forward? Should it be diversity in organizational leadership? Those who are running the organization, should they look more like the folks who they are, who who they're endeavoring to support? Should we support minority-led charter schools like uh, Naomi talks about, should we have more diversity in school board members, the work that Alicia is doing, uh, that I do, should we, you know, should school board, those who are policymakers, be more reflective of the students, should we have more student leaders, uh, like Jada, should we give school leaders more autonomy to make decisions about hiring, um, about late the school day, about curriculum, things that we at PPI and Native uh, America schools really fight for, this autonomy at the school level. Should we have more universal enrollment that opens up um, opportunities for students to attend schools outside of their zip code, as I mentioned before? Things that would have, you know, uh, that unfortunately, you know, Jada did not have access to. And lastly, should we elevate more Latinx leaders? This is a community that's incredibly involved in this work, the ones that all of us work with in our different work and our sisters and brothers uh, in this fight as well. Where should we be concentrating and prioritizing our work? And I, and we'll keep it up for a couple more minutes. And as the poll is up, I want to throw back out to the audience, and you know, please anyone you know, jump in here. You know, for years, reforming education in America was synonymous with so-called school choice. But the term school choice has many definitions. So I want each of you, you know, uh, many of you would like, how do you define what it means to have school choice, both now and moving forward? Um,
4: I'll just start off and say that I agree completely with Dr. Cole in terms of this being about what parents want and what they know to be true about their child or children. Um, At the end of the day, saying that uh, parents don't have a right to make those decisions is 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 very telling about the systems that those parents came from. If you do not trust your product, and I hate to use that terminology, if you don't trust the people that came out of your own school system to make the decisions about where their children should go to school, then that says more about the system than it does about those parents. So let's be clear, like this has to be about creating a space and opportunity for parents to make the most valuable decision that they will make for their own children. And that is based on the experiences that they had, the experience they have in terms of how their communities have been served. So I, I say this, that, that school choice is really about parent autonomy and their self-determination to decide what they deserve, what they know their children uh, deserve and need. So at the end of the day, I think I, we all have to remember that our communities already know what we need. Uh, earlier this year, NAXA, the National Association for uh, Charter School Authorizers, kicked off a campaign—a very thoughtful campaign—called "With Communities," and they they want authorizers of charter schools to really understand the value of communities. So parents, stakeholders, elected officials of color, all of those people make up communities. So be it Latina, Latinx, be it uh, indigenous, all of those communities know what they need and we need to tap into those communities to know what is best for the children of those communities. Uh, and so we know that there's some fresh thinking there. We know that the neighborhoods those students live in, they know what they do and don't, they, they, they deserve and what they are not getting. Getting. And so we need to have the investment in policy, practice, and people to see that reflected in schools.
3: Um, and I want to jump into thank you, Nam, for saying that. Uh, you know, talking about how parents know best. School choice for me, parent choice, it's personal. Um, my parents knew best when I was growing up in Miami that the the neighborhood school that I was zoned to go to for elementary wasn't going to work for me. Uh, And so my parents enrolled me in a school that was closer to my dad's job, which happened to be much more diverse and helped me understand the world a lot better. Um, Middle school, I went to a uh, performing arts magnet and same thing for high school. And my K through 12 educational experience uh, created the foundation for who I am today. And without that education, I would not be here and and have done the things that I've done. And so for me, this is about equity. It's about access. It's about saying that in the most basic way that parents know what's best for their children. I think about two calls that I've had in 24 hours. One from a, 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 about a child who was enrolled in one school in one County, but mom is moving to a whole nother state. Dad is still staying in Georgia. And I had to give the painful news to that parent that the law says, as dumb as it is, that you can't transfer, you can't stay in this school because you live in a, dist- a different county. In order to get that kind of permission, you gotta get superintendents to agree. It's, it's almost an act of Congress. Another parent who has a, a, a black boy who is high performing uh, and a, when she is advocating for her child to make sure that she's in a high performing teacher's classroom, the principal, a black principal, by the way, said to her this week, well, maybe you should just take them to a private school. And so it, it is agonizing to think about what parents deal with on a daily basis to just get a quality education for their child, whether it's removing them from a school that is poor performing, putting them in a school that celebrates their talents and their gifts or just having options that meet the need of that child. My 14 year old daughter chose to be in virtual education this year, which for some parents was not even an or on the radar, but for COVID. And so, you know, that's one good thing that came out of COVID is that we got a chance to really see what choice is really about. And so at the end of the day, um, this is personal for me, for parents across this country, who agonize about where we're going to send our children. And if I can choose where to go to the doctor, what hamburger place I wanna to go to, you know, I don't understand why it is so difficult to simply choose where my child gets the most important thing to set them up for the rest of their lives.
6: Yeah, and, and onto that, Alicia, that's, that's amazing. And I, I go through the same thing. I have a 13 year old son getting ready to go to high school next year. And uh, listen, that's a decision right there. And it's it's difficult, but I'm willing to go through it. And and like you said, as a parent, I have all the skills I need to figure out what's best for him. And he has all the input to tell me what's best for him as well. In addition to that, I'd like to talk about, we, we saw, it, we heard it from a parent standpoint, but there's also this idea of a system standpoint, and figuring out like what communities need and saying that how these schools actually get created in terms of school choice. And if we look at it like that, I think One of the things school choice means to me is figuring out what communities actually want and need and how can we go and really engage with those communities, figure that out what that is. And and the Mind Trust, we work with a community in Arlington Woods and a church that anchors that community in Eastern Star. They wanted an elementary school that was going to focus on social emotional learning in that community because they saw some huge trauma in their elementary school students coming to school every day. And then in their high school, the community wanted a tech school because they wanted a school, a school that focused on technology. Not because uh, the community wanted a whole bunch of technology, but they wanted access to high, uh, high wage, high growth jobs in, in that community. And so that school really focused on getting kids certifications as early as ninth grade. And so when we look at school choice, we also have to look at how the schools are created and who's being engaged in the creation of those schools.
2: I want to say, oftentimes people hear school choice, uh, they think it's code for you know private schools or or public charter schools. I will you know say I think what you're doing, um, Patrick, in Indianapolis, other places are saying traditional public school systems should need to provide educational options, different school models for their students. My children attend a magnet Montessori school in my school district, pre K three all the way to grade eight. And that is a public school option. There are other options whether well, it's you know, language immersion, performing arts, like Alicia mentioned. And so this is not a specific question around, um, you know, a particular type of school. Public schools, which is the, you know, the vast number of our students are going to attend, need to ensure that every student has access to every school, particularly those who have various school options. Uh, before we go on to the next question, I do want to see the results of our, of our survey. Um, Because this is really telling what the panel says at least number one is diversity and organizational leadership. And we love seeing that CEO next to Naomi's name, we want to see that we want to see that CEO president um, name next to people who look like the students that you purport to support and advocate for number two is this idea of minority led charter schools, school founders school founders who look like the students that again people say they care about and right there number three is that universal enrollment that idea that zip codes should not be predictors of people's future and that parents like jada's shouldn't have to make a decision about their own freedom and have to choose between their freedom or their children's success because i will tell you i will go to jail for my babies <laughs> so, I think we all will, um, and so let's just keep that, you know, Amen, keep that real. I don't have babies,
4: but I'm willing to go to jail so that parents can do what they need to do for their children, right? Um, Charles said he's scrappy. Listen, that goes across the board. Those of us who have had access still know what it means to be an advocate and to fight. At the end of the day, I think it's important. And there's a great question here in terms of, well, to back up to another question, why are we not talking about systems and why are we not talking about traditional districts? We see across the country that right now, just, just the ask of having accurate education and history taught in school is being fought day in and day out. And the only place that that it can really take hold is in the traditional systems. Why? Because they are controlled by people who do not look like us, who do not care what happens to us, or do not care about those who look like them have a a great foundation to start from. So that's number one, when it comes to why we use these other tools to work around those systems is because those systems have not served us well and people are fighting tooth and nail there is a, a lawsuit I think in Tennessee right now about CRT, about a book about Ruby Bridges. People don't want third graders to learn about B- Ruby Bridges. Like, what, what, what are we? how have we come to this, right? And so the question or the idea of having diversity and organizational leadership is important, but if we're not supporting the people who are in classrooms and in school buildings and administrators every single day who are of color, then none of this matters. So the reason I support charter schools and why I support uh, parent, autonomy in making these decisions is because those who are making the decisions and have the majority rules in this in this country are not thinking about how we are best served how indigenous students are best served we've just seen what has happened with the residential schools and in, in, in canada and in other parts of parts of this country that we don't talk about and so what we want to make sure is yes you can put people in power but if you're not supporting them if you're not believing in them if you don't recognize who they are as human beings then none of this matters so yes Yes. All, all the uh, all the ideas of giving parents the ability to make that choice matter. I'm a product of school choice. I started off in Montessori, went to traditional public school here in D.C. and was in the TAG program, moved out to Maryland, and attended public and private school. But at the end of the day, the, the crux of who I am is the, I'm the daughter of a daughter of an educator. I want to know everything. I want to know context. And the context in this country has shown us The history of this country has shown us that people are not hearing what it is that we need and what we deserve and so we are taking that power back and wanting to do this for ourselves and that self-determination will get us close to liberation but the idea of just pouring into systems that are then going to stifle what's possible that's not that's that's not going to work it's just not i
7: I agree with everything naomi said the homie just hit me it was like you could be paying more attention i'll take notes on everything everybody's saying so that's what i'm I don't, I don't just trust my brain. So that's what my head is down. But, but I mean, just in asking that question, I agree with what everybody said. I think how you define, you know, school choice, parent choice, or whatever the case is, it is, I have access to information. I can make autonomous choices. That's best for me, whether it's traditional, whatever, whatever the case is. Um, so people can take that how they want, uh, but the ultimate goal should be liberation. And, and I think, and when we talk about that, this is the question because people will pay a lot of lip service and they are really good with words on CNN and Fox and these places, right? This is how you can tell, yo, what do people hold themselves accountable to? And then what do they prioritize in their budget? And Patrick can talk about this again. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to be in this. It is what it is, right? You know what I'm saying? But with the bread I do get or what I'm able to do. One of my things was I want to give money directly to parents and community so they can do so they can solve this literacy issue on their own with us or whatever. Why do I keep giving it to folks that continue to fail over and over and over again with no skin in the game, the least I can do is give five grand to a mom. In Indianapolis, that has a, a business that's teaching literacy but also making some bread on the side, or in Oakland, where like it's one of the most expensive places to live. How are we invested in our people and the humanity of us? Because I'm I can't keep having conversations and debate where my humanity is the thing that we are having conversations about. Like I, I can't do that. So school choices is, is a is a is a term that is politicized. And the last thing that we that I'll say about that, man, is you have to take the public, political, private, and every. And what I mean by that is, everybody's trying to get a sound clip. Everybody is trying to like blow up. Everybody, people don't tell you what they think no more. They look at Twitter and social media and see what the the knowledge, uh, the, the the knowledge, uh, you know, market is saying, and then they tell you what they think. So good. I ain't I ain't gonna comment on everybody, kids, but for mine, for my family, the people that I care about. This is what's best for kid A and kid B and and kid C might be different. Take that public private, I mean, that public political piece and make it private and let people live their life and do what's best for them. But stop telling black people they owe this system something when they built it, man. And, and, And if you don't know that history, you should read Education of Blacks in the South, where people fresh out of slavery, essentially with their churches and a little bit of philanthropy, built public education and the farmers didn't even want it. And then they saw them Black people being able to read. And they said, oh, no, we want that. And they took it. Like, don't believe this narrative that Black people don't care about education. And the reason why we go so hard on it is because we know the consequences for us are so much more dire than it is for other groups. I don't have a safety nets under me. I can't just take a gap year. Like, I have a very, very different life if I don't take out a hundred grand in loans and go to college and I do something else versus the my white friends that I grew up around that got to go and, and travel through Europe for two years before they decided to go back to school and end up working at their daddy's company. So if we are gonna have this conversation, let's have it. But, you know, I'm going to go back to my notes now. Like, <laughs> well,
2: well, no, well, hold up. if we have about five minutes left and I want to get you all in. On a final question as, as we wrap up, and I'm, I'm glad, Naomi, you said Ruby Bridges, because to me, that's who Jada is to us. She's that Ruby Bridges. And if you learn much as you can about her, Jada, because she was that young person who really went through the fire for a lot of people to come behind her. Um, and so, and and guess what, Ruby Bridges is still a relatively young woman. (laughs) Like she's out, if you meet her, you'd be like, wow, this is, she is my mother's peer. She's, she is. Exactly. You don't know, she's like our mother's day. So this, this is not too far off, but as we wrap up, I want to start with you, uh, Ruby or Jada, um, (laughs) what are we not doing that we should be doing? And this is sort of a question of, you know, a lot of this work and, you know, i like to use the word Alicia romanticized. And we romanticize this work uh, that you can do it and, and, and you're not going to lose any friends and you know um, you're going to be able to walk through this you know uh, unscathed but we all have stories of really putting ourselves out there uh, and, and getting a backlash from it because we, but we understand it's just too important to, to, to stand pat. and so want to go around as we wrap up, uh, Jada, what are we not doing that we should be doing uh, moving forward?
5: Personally, I believe that we, there's not specifically something I think we're not doing. I think we need to continue to step on toes. I think we need to continue to make people uncomfortable with the reality that we are not receiving quality in education, that's just period. I wouldn't, I shouldn't have had to see my mom go through all of that just to get me and my sister a better education I shouldn't have had to be that student that people will point out and say hey I know what your mom did hey I seen your mom in the busted papers or anything that was just like I said demonized from her choice when it was the best thing she knew from me and my sister I think we need to continue to push and make people uncomfortable and if that means having backlash it means that we're being heard so it we'll just keep pushing in my opinion
2: Thank you so much. Naomi, what are we not doing that we should be doing moving forward?
5: Listening
4: to communities right? Um, and I say this as an authorizer. I say this as someone who does the work as an advocate. I say this as someone who um, has lived in the same community for more than 20 years. Um, listen to the people who are the end users of your product. And I, again, hate using business terms, but listen to community. Community is parents. Community is students. Community is the, the stakeholders and the people who are, um, that have their ear to the ground, right, in those communities. Listen to them. Do the work to support them. Uh, we know that investing in people directly, like Charles has said, makes all the difference. And being able to do that at, a, a, you know, your budget reflecting what it is that people are asking for shows that you are listening to them. So to, to trust communities and double down on what it is that they know to be
2: true. Thank you, Patrick. Bro, what we got to do moving forward that we haven't done
6: yet so far? Listen, first off, they better be lucky that we only trying to get Ruby Bridges in that school because we could be bringing Anthony T. Browder and Sheik to Jop. I'm not playing. So the, the thing, though, we really got to focus on is helping helping these organizations understand that we need to work with communities to use education to build infrastructure. And if we don't do that, we're going to look back and say we had a missed opportunity. An example of that is if we have communities that have a lack of entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs without resources, if we have communities that don't have enough physicians that look like people in the community, then why aren't we building schools in those communities to produce those physicians? And why aren't those schools nimble enough in about 10 years to change their focus to whatever else the community needs? And so when we look at it like that and we build infrastructure within our communities through the education system, then we provide communities with the infrastructure that they need to move forward without these organizations that so-called support them.
7: Thank you, Charles, Dr. Cole. I mean, I just wanna echo what they said. I think that, you know, I don't know how long we gotta look at systems that haven't been working for us before we just start stop putting all of our eggs in those baskets. I think folks should look up the term invisible institutions. And I think we need to have booster shots along with pushing these schools to be better. So that's our our religious institution. That's our elders. That's our, our CBOs that also get tax breaks to serve us. It's not gonna just be this one thing by itself. Um, and, and so, you know, Stop! Stop thinking that white ice is colder, man. You have things in your community and around you that you need to utilize uh, and use it up before they steal it all and sell it back to you for more things that you can't even afford.
2: Alicia, if if is uh, Ruby, um, you know, you're Fannie Lou Hamer, so you know, bring, bring it, bring it home for us. Listen,
3: I am sick and tired of being sick and tired of. Liberals in the Democratic Party, and I, am, I consider myself to be a progressive, uh, being comfortable with the status quo, who are telling us that we should accept schools the way they are, just send your child to the school that they're zoned to go to while they move into neighborhoods that have great schools or send their kids to private schools. Uh, The same thing happened in the civil rights movement with moderate preachers, the same thing is happening now, stop it. The second thing is support our black and brown led charter schools, financially, operationally, and politically.
2: That was intentional to have the good sister leave us on that note, the mic has been dropped. We thank you all for joining us in this amazing conversation. Please continue to follow each of their organizations, what they've done, continue to follow our work. When we uh, push this out, we'll be sure to tag all their organizations. You could follow them and continue this work. The next 30 years is really up to us because we declare it. Uh, so thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. We look forward to the next time that you tune in to a Reinventing America Schools webinar. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.